I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to a special Simon Says edition of the Queen podcast. We are going to be looking at Smile Etc. today uh, and we're very excited to do so. Um, but before we get into it, let's introduce the team. So, boom, boom, tsh, it's Suze Kempner, comedian and musician. Hello, Suze. Hello, thank you for my stomp, stomp clap from Just yes. Your Mouth. That's right. Uh, and uh, we have a bum, 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 bum. It's Mr. Simon Lupton, documentarian. Hello, Simon. Hello, Says. and nice to be here again. Yay. Uh, and we also have the mighty comedian and audio superstar. It's Mr. John Robbins. <laughs> Hello to you all. <laughs> Hello, everyone. <laughs> Uh, and then there's me, Rohan Acharya. There we go. That's, <laughs> that's the one that I came up with for this episode. Um, but yes, we uh, are doing a Simon Says special. So Simon, do you want to tell us what we're up to this episode? Yes. So um, as as fond listeners of this podcast will recall, um, I think the first episode, we, we introduced a feature point um, called Simon Says, that if anyone has... Any questions about uh, Queen or, or at any point in their history, then we would attempt to answer them. Um, and we had quite a few, um, I think probably from newer fans to Queen, perhaps came through the Bohemian Rhapsody movie, um, who were intrigued about how often we mentioned Smile. And they were keen to know who the hell Smile were, really, and what part they play in the Queen story. So we thought... Uh, having just done the first Queen album and mentioned Smile a lot, it would be a good time to delve into a little bit more about who Smile were, um, the music they did, and um, the part in Queen history they played. Nice. So that's what we're going to do. That is what we're going to do. So uh, I tell you what, Simon, you're good at this. Why don't you tell us what Smile were? <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm glad you asked me that, Rohan, because ah. um, I've, I've been thinking about this a lot recently. I'm getting slicker by the episode, I tell you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we start in 1964. We have Brian May, age 17, and him and some school friends start a band. 
and they meet a, a singer and a harmonica player called Tim Staffel, and he joins them, and they decide to call their band 1984 after the George Orwell book because they're all science fiction fans. A year later, Brian heads off to Imperial College to study astronomy, um, but 1984 continued to play gigs. Uh, a particular highlight for them came in 1967 when they supported Jimi Hendrix at, um, at an Imperial College gig um, with the key moment where, as Brian and uh, 1984 and, and Tim were sort of hoping to sneak out the front and watch Jimi Hendrix um, without having to pay to get in, um, they walked past his dressing room as Jimi Hendrix came out and he just uttered the immortal words, Where's the stage, man? <laughs> to Brian, uh, oh my God, that's so spinal who, who pointed him in the right direction, <laughs> and then uh, that was it. That's amazing! Um, wow. So early in 1968, they decided um, to call it a day. Um, they enjoyed playing, but they didn't feel that they quite had the right stuff to make it. Plus, Brian was getting more and more involved in his studies. Um, however, he kept in touch with Tim, uh, who was at the Ealing College of Art at the time, and they soon realised how much they missed being in a band. So they decided to form another one. Uh, they advertised on the Imperial College notice board for a drummer and the advert was answered by Roger Meadows Taylor. So Roger had been in a band called Johnny Quayle and the Reaction um, and had become really successful playing the uh, very popular circuit in Devon and Cornwall. I believe there is a book about uh, <laughs> Queen's exploits in Cornwall. Um, I, I'm happy John to provide you with a copy. complimentary copy. <laughs> Um, however, Roger knew if he was to succeed in music, then he really needed to be in London. Um, so he enrolled into the London Hospital Medical School to study dentistry, obviously, um, the well-known, well-trodden path to, to rock stardom, um, but with his eye firmly set on finding a band to be in. Um, it was Roger's flatmate who spotted Brian's advert at Imperial College, passed that information on to Roger, who met with Brian and Tim, they jammed at the jazz club room at Imperial College, uh, hit it off immediately, and that was where Smile was born. Um, they became a very well-known band on the college circuit, dividing their time between Imperial College, where they sort of became the resident band, if you like, uh, supporting the likes of Pink Floyd and Yes when they played there. And also they made use of Roger's Cornwall connections to play numerous gigs down there as well. Um, one particular highlight came in February 1969, where they were invited to play at a charity gig at the Royal Albert Hall. Um, they were on the bill with Free, which featured Paul Rogers, um, Joe Cocker and the Bonzo Dog Band, um, with the whole event being hosted by um, the radio DJ John Peel. So it was a massive gig for them and their first experience of uh, being in front of a really big crowd. And they certainly felt like they were heading in the right direction. Um, Can I add this two point, uh, quick Roger facts? Please. So when, uh, this is from an interview with Brian, when Roger answered that ad, um, that I think asked for, a, was it a Ginger Baker style drummer? Mit Ginger Baker, Mitch Mitchell style drummer. Yes. Yeah. So uh, Brian said what impressed him about Roger in the audition, which I think was at Imperial College in a sort of a, a hall, was, was yeah. firstly that he, he tuned his drums before oh, yeah. that he started the audition and secondly that when he when he hit the i think it's when he hit the snares he would hit the cymbals at the same time yeah which gives him a much bigger sound so as opposed to sort of playing a a fill on the the actual physical drums and then hitting a, f a few cymbals he would he would do both at the same time um 
And I think it's also worth pointing out that when we say, you know, they supported Jimi Hendrix and Free, that's a very diff and Pink Floyd that's very different to the situation today so if you supported Pink Floyd today that would mean you were quite a big band playing big venues but back then because bands tended to only play sort of theatres and music hall venues and corn exchanges and stuff the local band was just sort of used to so it doesn't mean they were suddenly massive because they were supporting bands that we now see as being huge sort of monolithic rock bands it was of a much more much more uh, bespoke local kind of vibe, wasn't it? Yeah, I this is sort of an era before stadium rock, I guess. Yeah, oh, completely. Totally. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was it was a sort of a case of that's what the the college scene was like. You were able to mm-hmm. rub shoulders with the likes of Pink Floyd and Jimi Hendrix when and there at the beginning of their journey as well. But yeah. they obviously sort of got a bit further down the line. Um, I just and also they weren't. They weren't the huge megastars that they no, are now. And that sort of probably happened after stadium rock became more... And when right. rock became much more sort of um, uh, financially rewarding, mm-hmm. that suddenly mm. the distance between audience and artist became immeasurable. You know, the the idea that you would sort of go to a Madonna concert today and see her in the bar afterwards is is just like completely (laughs) and utterly unthinkable but even even in the 70s you would you would sort of have much more access to the 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 physical members of the band than you do now Mm. uh that foot there's footage on the YouTubes of that Royal Albert Hall gig with Smile alas absolutely no sound but you can see like a I guess like six or seven minutes of Fuzzy black and white footage of Smile going at it and Roger looking cool as all heck. Hmm. I wonder if yeah. there is sound somewhere. Someone's got the audio. Simon, have you got it? No, we've never. I've never heard the audio for it. I I have a feeling, and I may be wrong about this, that the film was actually shot by Douglas Puddyfoot, who was a photographer as well as a cameraman, and famously, from a Queen point of view, he did all the photographs that appear on the back cover of the Queen, the first Queen album. Mm-hmm. So that photo shoot was, and I, he sort of photographed the band a lot at that time. I think he was a friend of Roger's. Right. So if that is the case, and he's listening, maybe he he could let us know if he's got the audio, because that would be amazing. So yes, so picking up the story. Um, Sorry, yes, thank you. It was at this point that Mercury Records started to show an interest um, and actually gave the band a record deal. Um, and they went into Trident Studios and started to record some songs. Um, and it was also about this time that a friend of Tim's started to uh, hang out with the band, um, a chap called Freddie Balsara. Um, he was a very keen supporter of Smile uh, and had plenty of ideas about how they should present themselves on stage and was very forthcoming in sharing his views, we're told. <laughs> um, he'd often travel with them in their van to gigs. Um, in August in 1969, Mercury Records released two of Smile's songs, uh, The first one was Earth, which was the A side, and on the B side was Step On Me, um, which they, which Step On Me actually had actually started life as a 1984 song. Um, The single failed to do anything at all, which was a big disappointment to the band um, and to Mercury Records as well. Um, Smile went back into the studio, this time to Delane Lee, to record some more songs. Uh, Interestingly, one of those songs was April Lady, which wasn't actually written by them. Um, and had Brian on lead vocals. Um, the band were very happy with the results, but Mercury's belief in them had started 
to waver, it would seem, and none of it was actually ever released. Um, by the end of 1969, they played a gig at the very prestigious Marquee Club, which was a kind of showcase uh, arranged by the record label, um, but the crowd was quite small and not particularly interested, so I don't think it went very well. Um, despite these setbacks, Brian and Roger remained ambitious, determined and optimistic, uh, and were strong believers that the new decade would bring the break that they desperately needed. Unfortunately, Tim had kind of had enough of slogging around the college circuit and was running out of patience, and he was given the chance to join a band fronted by Colin Peterson, who was the ex-drummer of the Bee Gees, called Humpy Bong. And he made the switch, <laughs> or as Roger has described in the interview, Tim sodded off to Humpy Bong. Uh, <laughs> they soon released a single, which was called Don't You Believe, which made it onto Top of the Pops, but it faltered after that, and eventually Tim drifted out of the music business altogether. So with Tim leaving, Mercury Records took the opportunity to drop Smile. Uh, Brian and Roger, I think you could have forgiven them for throwing in the towel at this point, but they were not to be deterred and vowed to carry on. All they needed was a new singer. Dr. Dun, dun, dun! Yeah. So who did they get? Um, <laughs> so it just seems like a weird place to podcast. end. Oh, <laughs> um... I, like oh, it. I think it's a fascinating story, but you can, when we listen to the music, you can definitely hear the beginnings of of Queen in there, can't yeah. you? But mm. I, I love the similarities with the Queen story. I love the fact that the two studios that Smile used were Trident and Delane Lee, which is where mm. the, you know, the the Queen story started as well. So it was almost like the false start for Queen. Really, <laughs> I think people probably who are hearing about Smile maybe for the first time if they've come to Queen late will find it really interesting to go back. But when I first heard Smile, I would say it was probably my third or fourth Queen album was Smile. Oh, wow. Because I'd I'd definitely got by that time Greatest Hits 2, Queen 1, and maybe Sheer Heart Attack. And a friend of my mum's who was really into Queen, especially early Queen... Now, he actually gave me a, a tape, and on one side was Queen 1, on the other side was Smile. And it was sort of the same sort of EP that is on a lot of different... It's called a lot of different things. I mm. think it's called, like, Queen in Noose was That's when it was got, burst yeah. out. And the album was Getting Smile, wasn't it? That's the one I that got. I got that... a Japanese import of that. Yeah. Which was sort of so, one of the last things I got. So I'll Yeah, that's it. Uh, so yeah. Simon's holding it up. So I had a... a a cassette copy of that so that music was for me much more like part of queen because i wasn't i did all i knew was this was sort of who what i think i used to say it's what queen were called before they were queen mm -hmm. but at the end of that collection of smile songs was a song which i for nearly 30 years now i've tried to track down and I could only like sing it to myself, this smile song, and I couldn't find it on any listings or whatever, or uh, any Wikipedia pages, any forums. And this week I was trying to find it to be like, because this is my favourite smile song and I want to share it with everyone on the podcast. And the only lyric I could remember was, um, say it ain't so, Joe, please say it ain't so. So I was Googling, Googling, Googling. It turns out the only version I could find of it was by a guy called... Lachlan Murray or something? Oh, that's a name that rings a bell for someone. Um, uh, Murray Head, sorry. <clears throat> All right. 
And um, I thought, oh, so Smile must have covered this song by Murray Head. So I found it on YouTube and I played it and it was exactly, I was like, oh, wow, this has taken me right back. It's my favourite Smile song. I realised that this guy had just added an extra track to the end of the Smile. So the song's called Say It Ain't So. And it's by... um, it's by Entirely Murray Head. Different. It was released in 1975, so it's got nothing to do with Smile. So for 30 years, I thought that this great lost Smile song. The amazing thing is, it sounds a hell of a lot like Tim Staffel, and it sounds, it sort of fits with their stuff. Wow, um, so this podcast isn't just helping our listeners, it's very much helping. Yes, help me solve the, an angel's problem with my favourite Smile song, Not Being by Smile. Oh, wow, that is, that is absolute gold. That is absolute gold. Fantastic. Um, so that is an interesting point. Uh, Suze, when did you first encounter Smile? Uh, when I was about 17, I bought Queen in Use in HMV, that big one on, it's still there, isn't it, on Bond Street. Yeah. I remember I'd, I'd go in there uh, and go through, see what was available by Queen. There were usually five or six albums available and always the greatest hits. And if they had one that I didn't have, I'd buy it. And I bought Queen in use and um, it had no info in it. And similarly to John, I just thought, well, this is Queen before Queen. But uh, I had no idea who this Tim Staffel was. It's only later I learned about him. But I have a link to Smile. It's a tiny link, but it it brings it all together beautifully. Seven Degrees of Rye. It's, it's a little bit. Is it? I, mean, Is it I don't know if it counts. I don't know if okay. it counts. I, in 2011, uh, friends of mine were doing an Amdram production of We Will Rock You, and they were doing it at Imperial in that hall where Smile played. So... Ah. It's, I uh, bet they didn't pay amateur... for the rights. <laughs> no, no, they put it on as a charity thing, so they had 24 hours to rehearse it, and then they did one performance. How did and, it go? Um, it was... Very charming. <laughs> was the lighting superb? It was lovely and charming. It was, I know, it was for charity. It was a load of, of, um, sort of biology students and <laughs> putting on. Yeah, they'd, they'd done their best. <laughs> That's amazing. I'd, I'm going to ask you in a second, Simon, as well. But um, yeah, I used to go to Books, Bits and Bobs in Kingston. I think you're talking about the big HMV on Oxford Street, right? So I used to go yeah. to this crazy little shop in... Uh, kinks that used to sell like everything comics and albums and stuff and I was looking through the Queen section and suddenly saw this crazy Japanese import LP of Smile with right and I was like what is this and I actually had to ask them and they were like yeah that's the band before Queen and I was like looking in the back going oh my god oh my god and it took me months to save up for that thing uh, finally got it and um, I am pretty sure that my mother's Got rid of it in a jumble sale on the on the rare occasions where I bring my you know build up the courage to go see her. I sort of had a surreptitious look, but I think she's got rid of all the LPs. Uh, and I was just looking at how much it might cost to replace it um, on eBay this week, and it's three hundred pounds. Oh my oh. god! Someone's I wonder if... in the car boot sale. <laughs> I'm hoping that uh, she doesn't have too long left, and then when I'm going through her house, having to clear it all out, maybe it will turn up. Uh, Behind I wonder something. If, if, if people get into Queen, if people got into Queen in the early 90s, if they had the experience where they got to smile quite early because the Queen in New CD was cheaper than all the Queen CDs. Yeah. So 
when if you were getting into so i first got all the queen albums on cassette and then started buying them all on cd mm-hmm. and when you were if you were new to cds when you were young and still didn't have a lot of disposable income you would always buy the 6.99 ones before the <laughs> yeah. 14.99 ones yeah. And Queen in Use was always six ninety nine, and so was the... Do you remember the interview collection? I had that as well. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's four wow. CDs with one of the... Each of the band member on a different CD. Yes. And they were like six ninety nine each. So you would you could afford them much more quickly <laughs> than you could, like, live at Wembley, double CD yes. would probably be twenty two ninety nine. You've just given me a moment where I can actually smell the hour price in Wimbledon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I really um, liked that Queen in New CD. What is it? I never encountered it. What's on it? It, What is it? A bootleg. Like John said, it's that same collection that appears under various different names. It's got on it. It had Larry Lurex on it, and it's got like Smile. uh, It's got By Smile, April Lady, Earth, Polar Bear, Step on Me, which I think is amazing. Um, It didn't have a version of Doing All Right on there. I think. Did it's have blag on it, yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Earth, and then it, you've got uh, it there, yeah. and I'm trying to like go. It's got this on it, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> I'm. You're doing really well. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> what so have I missed? Who, who would have owned that music, Simon, at the time? Because that's not an official Queen release, mm-hmm. is it? Or no, is this it? is this is released by a company called Milestone Records. So I can only imagine. So there's there's an early um, uh, Van Morrison album which which is sort of pre-Astral Week stuff, which is released by about 10 different record labels. Is this a similar thing in that it's essentially copyright-free music that you can put out wherever? I think that's what it's got to be. I think there must be sort of up for grabs as to who owns it. And I suspect that Doing All Right got claimed by Queen because they redid it gotcha. as a Queen track. But the rest are up for grabs. Because when you look at, at Queen in News, if you get it, it's... I mean, the photograph is on the front is not great. Um, there's nothing inside the booklet. That's blank. No. Oh, God, <laughs> and, and randomly on the CD is is a photograph of Freddie from the... Um, it's a hard life video, so quite well that's oh, yeah, yeah. to do with yeah, anything. It's bizarre, I have no isn't idea. It? Um, yeah. But yeah, as you say, it was a, it's a way of getting that music, I guess. Um, mm. And, and have, have any of you solved the riddle of why it's called Queen in Use? No, I don't know what no. that even means. Sorry, Giles, producer Giles. With apologies to our Italian audience and listeners, um, in nuce means in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, does it? oh, I never knew that. So it's nuce, and I began queening news. <laughs> <laughs> wow, the things oh, wow. we're solving oh. on this podcast. 30 year old oh. itches. So it's it's Italian. <laughs> We've been nice. calling it in news for 20, 30 years. Brilliant. It still and doesn't describe it very well. Yeah, you couldn't it? pick a worse title for an unofficial <laughs> collection of pre-Queen songs that weren't written or recorded by Queen with with nothing in the liner notes and a photo of a member who wasn't even in the band to describe Queen in a nutshell. <laughs> How many times did you look at that cover and go, Queen and useless, more like? And then now, <laughs> 30 years later. It's thank you, producer odd, Charles. Nuche. Oh, there you go. It uh, reminds me of the guitarist from my school band who uh, had uh, a, an epiphany one day when he offered me some Moringu ice cream and I went, you mean meringue? 
<laughs> Meringu. He just he, he thought meringue and meringu were two different things. Uh, and it was oh, a beautiful, wait, beautiful Wait until moment. we get to a, a special Queen lyric mishearings uh, episode oh. that we'll have to do. At some <laughs> yeah, cool. that's a genius idea. That's going down in the notes. Uh, yeah, shout out to Zoe. Bless you, miss you. Right. How do we feel? Oh, Simon, yes. How did you get into... When, when did you first encounter Smiles? What part of your... Well, I've, how much it was actually got? the album called Queen in Nuce. Um, was what oh. was, got me into it. Fantastic. Uh, no, I, I sort of. It was that kind of thing where I had bought all the albums, but like you, I'd sort of go into HMV in London in the hope that there might be something, and I discovered this as a new release. And wonderfully, it was it was cheaper as well as John said, yeah. so it was like a win win. Ah. Um, and you do come away and you get a bit disappointed because it's not actually Queen at all. Um, it's, it's the members <laughs> of Queen, but in different forms. Um, yeah. But yeah, it, and, and then it, it was sort of when um, Jackie and uh, and Jim brought out their Queen As It Began book. Um, oh, from and, the fan club. Know, for, yeah, and it was the complete story of Queen. And then they, they really sort of explained what Smile was. Um you know, in a really brilliant way, which was great. Something that we will come back to again and again is that there is so little compared to other bands that doesn't come through the official sort of release channels. So Mm -hmm. in terms of rarities and bootlegs and crazy albums that you'd never seen before, there isn't a lot with Queen, whereas other bands people might be fans of, you can get almost as many sort of rarities and little sort of nuggets and easter eggs as you do official albums certainly if you're like a, a like a Beatles or a Bob Dylan fan there's whole sort of swathes of unreleased stuff and and interesting little tidbits but with Queen they're 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 much more careful about what makes it out of the sort of the um I don't know what the phrase is the mothership. The mothership. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The mothership. <laughs> yeah. 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 About buy, you know buying stuff in shops like H and V. Am I the only one that knew that Queens Reich existed because they were next to Queen? In- <laughs> yes. <laughs> Same. Yeah. Otherwise, I'd have no idea that they ever existed. In Queens of the Stone Age and Queens of yeah, the yeah, movie, yeah. and you'd go through and you go, oh, is that something new? No, it's Queens of the Stone Age, and they've put it back yeah. in the wrong place. You get really disappointed. Oh no. Yeah. No. Yeah, we probably sort of listened to a, a surprising amount of material from those two bands just to double check that they're not Queen. I certainly did explore <laughs> quite a bit of Queen of the Stone Age in the end. Yeah. Um, but I was angry with anything that wasn't Queen. When you go through anything, I was like, Prince, angry with you. You're not Queen. Just I was. So militantly loyal to Queen that the very <laughs> labels of other bands would upset me. Well, <laughs> luckily, Mercury Rev are actually very good. Oh, yeah, yeah. that's true. That's true. For what they do. <laughs> um, all right, brilliant. Should we actually listen to some of this stuff? What do you think? Is yeah. Actually listen to yes, some please. Of the tracks? Let's listen to the first track on the album, which is uh, called Earth. Uh, I think this one was written by Tim. It's just under four minutes long, three minutes 59. Um, uh, it was produced by John Anthony, who did go on to work on quite a bit of Queen stuff, right, guys? Um, I, I'm being presented with the most fabulous yawn from John right now. And uh, <laughs> and uh, and uh, apparently he wrote it because he was a bit of a science fiction, but I think they were all science fiction buffs, really. Um, but it was a reaction to that. 
uh, and recorded in June 1969, as are the rest of the tracks we're going to listen to. So I'm going to just play this little bit here. I might be at a table and suddenly I'll catch a fleeting vision of her crystal seas. Or I might be standing in a crowded dockyard far away, underneath the sun I've never How about that? Really good. I I often think like when I first knew of Smile, it was always like, oh, what if Tim Staffel had gone on to be in Queen, which obviously would never have happened because so much of Queen is is Freddie's input. But I think it would be interesting if he'd been the bass player. Because, um, did he play bass? Yeah. yeah so he mm. he was lead vocals and bass, and mm-hmm. that's a much more likely possibility that Queen could have featured Freddie on vocals and Tim on sort of backing vocals and bass because his bass playing is actually really nice. Mm-hmm. It's it's quite interesting in the background. I mean, I'm still Deacon till I die. Hashtag Deacon till I die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was but, I was quietly seething to be honest. <laughs> just a little bit. The, the little sort of um, the little runs he does. I'm not saying they're Deacon-esque, but they do bring something a bit mm. more to it than just sort of a classic background bass. Yeah, it does drive. His bass does drive through mm. that song. Mm. It's beautiful. Mm. It's a very beautiful song, and actually he has got a very beautiful voice. He really does. He's got a He's... great voice. It's so different to Freddie's. It's mm. really interesting hearing. They did a version of Doing All Right following the movie. It's his voice in the movie as well, isn't it, in Bohemian Rhapsody? Uh, and they, I think they, it's called Doing All Right Revisited with the with him, Brian and Roger, and hearing their different voices sing Doing All Right when I'm so used to hearing Freddie sing it, it's really interesting. The, their approaches were completely different. He's yeah. mellifluous, isn't he? Mm. He's just sort of, yeah. there's an ease to it. And uh, mm-hmm. um, I mean, it's, it's yeah, uh, it's it's really impressive, I think. Um, have it's you got a, any... It's an interesting question, isn't it, as to whether whether they would have been successful if they'd stuck at it. You know, mm. carried tomorrow along because that, you know, we Roger and Brian are such integral parts of Queen's success. Um, so you'd like to think that they would have been successful in whatever form they they moved forward. And I don't think I think we all probably agree they wouldn't have been as big as Mm-mm. Queen became because whether you put aside comparing Tim as a performer and a vocalist, you, you if you take out Freddie's composition from Queen mm. there's a huge chunk missing because you know Freddie had a habit of writing songs at really key moments like you know Killer Queen was their first real big hit and that was Freddie and Bohemian Rhapsody was Freddie so you know Freddie played a massive part in in Queen becoming as big as they did but I've got a feeling they would have they would have done pretty well I think there were a lot of bands that did succeed in the 70s that were a lot worse than Smile oh yeah <laughs> and I appreciate that this is you know, an early recording and all this kind of stuff, but but actually, the nature of the music just reminds me very faintly. You know, the bit in 
Spinal Tap where you see their pre-Spinal Tap band and it's all in black and white and they've got like bowl haircuts and stuff and you know it's just has a, that's it the quarry men it just quarry has men. a little i think i think it's fair that this is a, a blueprint for for, for what yeah. queen became it sounds um, more like music from a 60s band who never quite made it as opposed yeah. to music that you can listen to and think oh i can absolutely tell why they went on to be enormous mm, yeah mm. I, I bet of... I, I bet everyone was in a band like smile yeah yes it's it's a little bit this particularly this song particularly earth is a little bit um space oddity isn't it yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It's it's that it, I I don't I suppose that they were parallel because that's 1969 as well I think, um, but yeah, it's it's definitely 60s themes. Yeah, yeah. But I do take your point, Simon. I think it is surprisingly good for that mm. type of album that you might listen to now, and you're like, actually, this is pretty credible stuff, mm-hmm. you know. Um, yeah. Also, in in Brian's guitar parts, you can absolutely see that he was going to go on to be someone who could write incredibly melodically Hmm. and not sort of take over a song and I love the guitar tone it's I mean this in the nicest way it's got a really nice squawk about it Mm. (laughs) which does which you can also pick up on in Queen 1 I mean by by Queen 2 it was much more sort of um I guess the word would be like regal and mm-hmm. uh, harmonised but there's a really nice it sounds like one guitar but a very f- full mm. if squawky version of yeah. said guitar yeah and when, if you listen to I don't know if we can listen to a bit of Blag I don't know if you've got that to hand do you want to go no, straight to Blag I was just going to work through but we could go straight oh, to okay. Blag oh okay well no just with Blag it's just what ties into what John was saying there is that you can very much hear the beginning of Brighton Rock can't you in yeah. oh yeah yeah, yeah. In, well actually we talk end. about that when we get to that because okay. that is I'm okay. actually going to I'm actually going to play that bit that you're talking about oh. so what I've done is made you look incredibly prescient Yes, I'm I'm a bit ahead of the, the curve, so I'll wait for everyone else to catch um, up. Or, or we could, I, I, yeah, I think uh, I think it'd just be easier to um to to work through. Shall we listen to the next track on the album, which is "Step on Me," which Brian and Tim wrote together? So it's credited to May and Slapple. It's just over three minutes, three minutes and nine, um, and uh, it goes a little bit like this. I've never seen the lyrics before. I thought it was my life was going to be better. My wife could. I... 
I thought it was my wife's. Oh, oh that's, man, that's good. Now I know it's my <laughs> wife. I thought it was my wife. Could I never <laughs> see she'd step on me? The song about a guy with a really tall wife. Yeah. Hey, <laughs> she stepped on me. It's why oh. I went for that second verse actually, because there's this constant <laughs> reference to smile, and I think they kind of had a they had a whole branding thing. There's that photo of them holding little smiles up. I think. Tim designed yeah. that Smile logo and all that kind of ah, stuff. Ah, cool. And it's interesting that they, they're they referring to themselves in a way. There's a play on the voc- on the lyrics here. Um, and it, that reminds me of, 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 of Queen's lyrical play, you know, um, you know, where they refer to themselves uh, in person or whatever. And, you know, that's something that they definitely kept doing. Yeah. What a fascinating That's... observation I've just made. No, but there. it is like Queen, because then Freddie went on to design the Queen logo, so it's weird mm. parallels. Yeah. What a tune, though. It's a proper uh, pop yeah. tune. It's just a really jolly, listenable, fabulous tune. I'm it's quite Beatles, know, isn't it? Yeah. Also, it's the, probably the only time you'll hear Brian May without the Deaky amp. Uh, ah. which is So, John Deacon made a... Uh, a treble is sort of no, it's not a treble booster. I think did he make the treble booster as well? Anyway, jo- jo- John Deacon made a preamp for Brian called the De- which became known as the the Deaky amp. People people may email in to say it's not it's not technically a preamp. Anyway, it's called the Deaky amp, <laughs> and it plays a, a big part in Brian's sound. He still uses it to this day, mm-hmm. um, and it has been sort of you can buy official versions of it, I think. I think they did manufacture it. I watched a 50-minute interview with Brian about uh, his guitar and effects uh, a couple of days ago, which was uh, very interesting. And I'm guessing that that... So it sounds like, when you listen to the guitar on Step On Me, that he's using a fuzz pedal. I very much doubt he was. But you can also tell he wasn't using a Vox AC30 absolutely up to the max because he stopped using or doesn't use overdrive because the voxes when you turn them up really high do do a better version of it than an overdrive pedal uh-huh. would do uh, just the natural sound of the voxes um which is also why uh I was listening to a podcast about the Beatles the other day called uh, my own personal Beatles that a friend of mine started mm-hmm. so when the Beatles played Shea Stadium they had vox AC30s but because the sound setup there was hilariously bad, they weren't even the amps weren't even mic'd up. They turned all the amps up as high as they could go, uh, so the songs just sound much heavier than they usually would, um, because the the amps are up higher than the Beatles would ever have used them in the studio. Uh, okay. Um, so you get a much heavier sound on on those live Beatles gigs than you would usually do, and I think there you've got Brian perhaps slightly turned down but that's just a guess so you're telling me that brian uh, got his dad to make him a guitar got his bass player to make him an amp. did brian ever go to a shop did he ever go <laughs> he, buy he, anything he did did he he did um well a he got the royal mint to make his plectrum uh, oh, that's true and, <laughs> but also he bought the, he, the the only thing that he couldn't fully make himself were the pickups he tried making pickups um but because the body of the red special is slightly hollow it's got two sort of acoustic boxes in it when you put and he he, i mean i'm basically reporting this knowledge from Brian himself because he says it in the interview but when you mic up an acoustic 
guitar with um, uh, just a regular pickup, you get feedback between the acoustic sound of the guitar and the signal going into the pickup. A bit like the reason we're all on our headphones for this interview okay. is because if we didn't, we would be getting the feedback from the the the, the various signals. Mm. So he he couldn't get um, he couldn't make his own one to avoid that whistling and feedback problem. Uh, so he went to the Burns shop on Tottenham Court Road and said, "Do you have any pickups?" And they said, "Yeah, we got these." And I think they were nine guineas. <laughs> um, wow! How much uh, language so, so he bought them and then he he filled them with araldite to stop the uh, the feedback problem and. Um, they're still on his guitar today. That's amazing. That is amazing. That is amazing. I don't think the guy... It's amazing. It's the, it's, the same, it's the same guitar, and it's not even like, what is it, triggers broom and say, oh, it's had 19 new handles and eight new heads. It sounds like the Red <laughs> Special hasn't had anything new or anything. It just... It had a, it had a star. So I've got a Red Special copy. Ah, um, but I've got the the second release of the Guild copies, which, you know, <laughs> as a purist, you can say is uh, one of the more beautiful versions, but certainly not like not as good as the very specific bespoke ones he got made uh, more recently. Mm-hmm. But um, there is a little star, you know, the star from uh, Back to the Light and mm. Another World. Oh yeah, there's there's a star on the. Um, on the uh, scratch plate, and that is to cover a button for a, a, I think, a fuzz switch, which he may have been using on that smile track, actually, putting two and two Ah. together, which he then removed when he realised you could get the better effect by turning the AC30s up to the maximum, and that completes my anecdote. That's incredible. (laughs) Well, uh, my main concern is we only have purists left listening at this point, so should we we move (laughs) on to the next track and try and get... Some of our mainstream listeners, well, that is amazing, John. That detail of that's knowledge wicked. is really great. That's that's. Um, I'll I'll translate that one day and uh, understand what you mean. I like prompting this <laughs> back. Um, no, that was fantastic. Well, uh, we're moving on to the track that they did take on to Queen One, uh, written by May and Staffel, three forty-five, uh, three minutes forty-five. It is doing all right time. Um, which is a kind of different version of this. I'm going to play a bit from about halfway through the track. You can kind of see how they evolved the track for Queen One. Should be waiting for the sun
what a blueprint of mm. the songs that's come. You know, it's got almost like a work in progress, isn't it? When you when you get to the Queen Queen version, there's a few extra bars of guitar for sure, uh, and just such a but huge, amazing sound. And like you're mm. saying, Simon, they're in exactly the same studio as they were in. Um, and I think from what John was saying, they had different equipment at the time, though. He's certainly got a very Robert Plant vibe to his voice there, hasn't he? Yeah. Mm. Like, really noticeably planty. Mm. Mm. It's just completely different to Freddie. For that, because when Freddie sings that, uh, should be waiting for the sun, it, on, the, on the Queen One album, he's got a much more relaxed tone. And it's not even quite falsetto, but it's like a very... I mean, I don't know, I haven't seen him sing it, but I imagine he's get using a very wide mouth shape to create that. Whereas Tim Staffel's The Sound's much further back and it's, again, not falsetto, but he'll suddenly flip into falsetto. So he's like, it's quite a, I should be waiting for the sky to clear. And it's, he, he'll like very noticeably flip into falsetto, whereas Freddie doesn't really do that. She's not a, disservice to either of them it's a choice uh but yeah like such different sung approaches to the same bit see john that's how you make a point without losing just the general <laughs> yeah but tim that, that staffel is technical did... analysis tim staffel doesn't have a little star on his vocal cords where he used to have a fuzz box because his dad made his throat <laughs> I imagine I would be interested for a listener feedback if they're like, could you stop being a nerd about different ways singers tilt their vocals? No, 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 don't ever do that. You must But it's really, I'm fascinated by, it's really nice to have these two different vocals for the same song. There's that moment, the reason I picked that moment is on the, Queen version, you get that amazing moment of Freddie going, wow, right away. That amazing. Uh, and yeah, he, and it doesn't even sound like a flip into Bell. He's like, anyway, I got to hide away. And he's got all that amazing Freddie distortion on it from yeah. the start. Yeah, it's yeah. Like, oh, there's a sort of ferocity to the way Freddie's doing it, whereas Tim's actually mm. saying, it's a very beautiful version of the song, actually. I think yeah. um, Tim's vocal's very rich. What do you think, Simon? Where do you stand on the two versions of Doing All Right? No, it's, it goes back to what we were saying, doesn't it? It's it's the blueprints. You know, you can you can see, you know, everyone sort of finding their way and, and, and finding their sound, as you say. And that's why Smile is such an important part of the, the Queen story, because so much mm. of the, the foundations were being laid not only by by Brian and Roger and what they were doing and how they were developing the styles but but Freddie watching them and and seeing right. them and going okay if I was their lead singer this is what I'd be doing you know he mm. was he was learning from Tim you know, perhaps what he would do more than Tim um but it just sort of meant that when Smile then merged into Queen it, it did it did with that confidence because Smile had existed beforehand and it's actually and I think doing who, all right is such a great way of comparing that journey. Yeah. Yeah. And I imagine that he would be telling the band that this is how I would do it as well. But uh, it is actually Tim, because it was Tim who was at Ealing Art College with Freddie. And so he's the one that yeah. introduced them to the band. It's actually. Yeah. So Freddie was Tim's friend. And yeah. And they must have met, I'm sure, because they were both at Ealing Art College. Um, and uh, it, it's sort of why Freddie was such the perfect fit, because. 
so much of what Tim was bringing to the band in terms of his design and and that kind of artistic look. You know, Freddie took and and then took to the next level mm. and beyond. It's interesting. It's quite sad because whenever you hear Tim interviewed, he sort of kind of says, "Oh, yeah." everyone queen fans need to thank me because if i hadn't moved out of the way you wouldn't have had queen which is mm. which is feels quite sad but i think you know it, it's lovely that we're here being able to sort of acknowledge the role that he played um mm. in, in helping sort of create it and i think there's an enormous amount of affection for tim amongst Definitely. the queen fan community right there's oh queen fans never tire of uh, you know hearing what he has to say and yeah. reminiscing about those days for sure So for the next track we're going to listen to is um, April Lady, which was written by the mysterious Stanley Lucas, who we have no real idea who he is or where he came from. We think that he may have been just a um, a, a sort of in-house writer for, 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 the, for the label, actually. Uh, and we're moving into a bunch of tracks that are produced by Fritz Freyer now. Um, it's a short song. It's 2 minutes 42, and I'm just going to play a blast of that now. The children learn to Good rock and roll song, isn't it? Mm. I think it sounds perhaps the most Queen of any of the Smile tracks, and because you've got that harmony, and there's that really nice uh, chord sort of chord sequence there, um, just before that cut out. That's, that's all. Beat. Yeah, I would. I would like to have heard Queen's version of April Lady the most probably. Yeah, yeah. Yes, that would be yeah. great. Yeah, there's yeah. little hints of Sweet Lady in that as well, isn't there? Yes. Yeah, um, but it is a beautiful, beautiful pro- pro- progression. So this is a Roger Taylor track we're going to listen to now called "Blag," uh, which is just over three minutes long. Um, and this is the only Roger song on this album, which is so he started that tradition here. <laughs>
That's a soaring rocker, isn't it? There's the sort of the do 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 bits on either side of it that I'm maybe less enamoured with, but that centre section is just blinding rock with Tim just belting out as actually pretty much as hard as Freddie could. <laughs> maybe <laughs> yeah, not. Maybe yeah, not, but... it. No, think, totally, think, but... but in a completely different place. Yeah. I think maybe he was he was sort of dallying with the limits of his vocal range a bit more than Freddie would <laughs> would perhaps have done. <laughs> Only just you can just sort of hear him at, at the at the top of what he could do there. I think he does mm. slightly lose it in the odd millisecond here and there, doesn't it? But he? it doesn't really <laughs> matter because of it. the nature of the song is quite right. sort of rough yeah. and, and yeah. ready. And I don't know if uh, any of you noticed. Um, certainly, I noticed it. You it, you might have not picked up on this, but uh, every single hit of the snare drum is accompanied by uh, a simultaneous hit on the cymbal, and that's just the sort of thing that. Wow. That, um, oh that really sort of high-level musos like myself uh, pick up on <laughs> well, and have exactly. not just been told by the producer at all. <laughs> <laughs> but it is exactly what uh, you mentioned Brian had picked up on about Roger's playing. that Roger hyperactivity that is often there in especially his early penned Queen tracks there's like this real like energy to them definitely and and just that's the beginning of the Queen sound you know which Mm. I think that particular moment lends itself to is really reminiscent of of Brighton Rock you know that kind of the way the guitar and the drums are, are playing off of each other Mm. Um, it's so weird to hear it without the delay though yes so you're essentially hearing one third because he would have Mm. had two so he had like ping pong delay so to go so it's weird to hear basically half of you're hearing one speaker from brighton rock yeah i love that i love that he i love that he's been noodling with that sort of sequence of ideas and is still doing that in his solos live he still uses that as the base place for for where he's going to launch off into so that's Mm -hmm, something that he's had around since well 1969 so i guess he's that sort of the stuff that he was playing around with as a kid growing up because you said he was what 17 at this point no a bit older 19, yeah, 20, so, yeah, maybe. He was at university at this point, but um, yeah. college, you know, Imperial College. But yeah, no, it, it's something that stayed with him his entire career and it is what makes him unique. You know, that's, mm, mm. that's the Brian May sound. You know, you can that is hear it coming together there. So, so Polar Bear, uh, for the sake of completion, here is a little bit of Polar Bear by Tim Stafford and Brian May. Uh, and here we go. Winner sits the polar bear 
response to polar bear from the gang <laughs> I like just, polar bear. do you it's just so robert plant his yeah. work is so yes. led up it's almost like you kind i don't know people are often accused early queen of being very led up but that is that is too led up for me <laughs> and, and i like led up yeah i just remember when i first got that swell album being really excited about there being a song called polar bear <laughs> and then it was. Oh, I think it might be the first one I put. I was like, I've got to listen to that one first. And uh, <laughs> and it, it is for me personally, with my tastes, which are very mainstream, uh, more of a challenging listen. And I think the rest of the <laughs> stuff on the album, I actually really like this album, but um, um, <laughs> less so for me that one particularly. Um, but that's all right. How do we feel about just quickly checking out uh, these bits of Freddie that I've got available? Is it the lyrics? Um, yeah, so I thought the the first thing that I'll play is just a little bit of uh, this. Um, it's a terrible recording of an Ibex gig, which was the Liverpool uh, was it Manchester band that uh, Freddie was a part of. Uh, that then he renamed Wreckage. I'll get onto that in a second. Um, but this is from the Liverpool Sync Club in uh, September nineteen sixty nine. Um, and it's the last Ibex gig, which was recorded by Jeff Higgins, their roadie. Um, Smile were at the gig. Brian and Roger joined the band, including Freddie, on stage for the first time. However, Higgins's tape ran out before that bit actually happened. So this is the gig <laughs> where the guys sort of first essentially played together, um, which is quite cool. Uh, and this is a track called Rain. Um, I hope you can even, I don't know, let's see. <laughs> six or seven tracks of that lasts about half an hour and what blows my mind is uh i mean to be fair i guess it was only put up in may this year but um there's genuinely only 41 views of that so far mm -hmm. uh, so with any luck after this podcast that might actually go up a bit but um hmm. what do you think simon I, you, it's fascinating to hear isn't it 
you can definitely tell it's Freddy. Oh yeah. Yes. That's the thing, and um, I think it's it's fair to say he he took a little a little while to find his voice, you know, and um, but it's really strong from from that, and that's what 1969. So yeah, so he was very young, right? Yeah. Twenty-two with no formal training or anything. That's yeah. yeah. And he's going for it, you know, to, to, that you can hear him so clearly through all the racket. I think the um, the tape recorder was next to the bass amp, so right. that's why you hear right. the bass so strong in it and all that kind of stuff. And But yeah, Fred's cutting through that somehow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, so that is a beautiful artefact. Uh, and then, of course, there's that brilliant story of how he changed Ibex's name to Wreckage by speaking to each individual member of the band and telling them that the rest of the band had agreed to change the name to Wreckage, <laughs> right? Which <laughs> is fantastic. It's, he's so mischievous. I love him. Um, but this was recorded in his flat, and they were being purposefully uh, quiet because neighbours were complaining about them making a racket and stuff. Oh, wasn't so, it like one in the morning or something? Yeah, and yeah, like, yeah, exactly. got to rehearse. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it is very, very quiet. Freddie particularly is quiet. But uh, anyway, let's listen to a little bit of it because it's a beautiful artifact. Don't forget, but when you... After, no, you after the two verses, you'd be doing the same thing like you did. Like you'd be going... Then you'd be going... Okay, one, look, let's get on with it. Right. Mm. Freddie's earlier band. Um, very jolly little number it is too. Yeah. yeah. What And what I love about it is you can hear uh, from that, Freddie's one of the only singers I've ever heard, certainly one of the only male singers I've ever heard, who can have a real um, light tone but keep it really full. One, and like One of the only other singers I can compare it to is Barbara Streisand, who can wow. actually barely make a noise into the mic, and yet it's a real full, rich sound. And he's marking there, basically, but oh it, my God. it's Freddie a whole... Freddie would have loved to hear you say, oh, he's the only person yeah. I can think of that he sounds like is Barbara Streisand. <laughs> would... the, yeah. the example I can think of with Barbara Streisand is the ending of a song she did in Yentl called A Piece of Sky. And at the end of A Piece of Sky, she holds for about 24 seconds a belted D. <laughs> but she, But she's literally making barely a noise into the mic in the recording, but it sounds like a whole thing. And it's not just the mic doing the work. And Freddie there, it's even more impressive because it's being recorded on a tape recorder. Wow. Wow. It's... Wow. That's a beautiful, beautiful thing to be able to discern from from a fuzzy <laughs> recording in Freddie's <laughs> flat. But that's that's beautiful. That's absolutely beautiful. I thought there's there's three other tracks that I think that are, are prescient for this album, uh, for sorry, for this podcast, for this episode, that is worth looking at very quickly. It's the double A side by Larry Lurex, which 
uh, I think he, he and Brian and Roger, right? So I mean, maybe you could tell us a bit about Larry Lux. Uh, from what I can recall, um, yes, it was when they were in in the studio, but they they wanted someone to to test the equipment, and um, they asked if uh, if you know, Brian, Roger, and, and Freddie would just to play these tracks, and they ended up recording them. And I think it wasn't until much later when Queen started to take off that um, they got released uh, as Larry Lurex, which was a um, uh, a play on Gary Glitter, who was was very big at the time. Uh, less so now. We're all pleased. That's <laughs> very delicately handled. <laughs> Strap, strap in for this, guys. Do you want to hear a Queen and Gary Glitter fact? Go yes. on. Yes. Uh, okay, we'll ask you a question. Uh, when was Queen's last live performance with John Deacon? Oh, no. Well, uh, I'm going to talk about the after-show party. Yes. Uh, so not at the Freddie Mercury tribute, then? <laughs> no, as in Freddie's last, oh. Freddie. last performance. Oh, so not Nebworth. Uh, no, it was at Kensington Roof Gardens. Oh, of course. At the after-show oh. party with Gary Glitter. Oh, shit. So technically, because they all got on stage, and I think they did the sort of rock and roll medley, didn't they? Yeah. Okay. But it, and I once, did a, I once did a corporate for a magazine company that was, that was taking place underneath Kensington Roof Gardens, and they were having their um, after party on Kensington Roof Gardens and I, for some reason before I handed out the awards to uh, Best Knitting Magazine decided <laughs> to mention that this was actually a pretty important venue for me because it's technically where Queen's last performance with Gary Glitter was um, not a huge amount of take up for that factoid there wow this was uh, they were recording their debut album at Trident Studio, uh, the Trident Studios house engineer Robin Jeffrey Cable got Freddie to perform lead vocals on some tracks he was experimenting with, and Freddie performed as Larry Lurex, um, and these were released on in 1973 on a on the I Can Hear Music single, um, and this was released actually a couple of weeks before the Keep Yourself Alive single was released. Um, so I'll play the A-side, which is I Can Hear Music, uh, which was a Phil Spector song, essentially. Phil Spector, Ellie Greenwich, Greenwich and uh, Jeff Barry. Um, and I'll play this first. I can hear music. I can hear a sort of spoofiness to it isn't there yeah there's uh, certainly a sense of humor to it i mean far be it from me to suggest another appalling a collaboration with another appalling person <laughs> but you can't help but think if freddie and phil Spector together at their 
peaks. What a wall of sound that would have been. <laughs> <laughs> What's interesting on that is Brian and Roger were also playing on that track, um, but they weren't playing. You can playing. hear that guitar. You can. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's almost Christmassy somehow. That track, isn't it? It is. Mm. Well, he does. Phil Spector had that Christmas album, didn't he? But uh, this that the wall of sound. Uh, technique, recording technique. Freddie was obviously really interested in that because you hear it on Queen too yeah. in Funny How Lovers, and yeah. the, they yes. those two really complement each other. That's true. But the guitar solo in that reminds me so much of I'm Going Slightly Mad. The guitar solo in this track. In in, in yeah, uh, in I Can Hear Music. In I Can Hear Music. Uh, they they've like nearly twenty years apart. They really sound. It really sounds influenced by this guitar sound. So uh, this is the B-side on that single called Going Back, which was written by Jeff- Jerry Goffin and Carol King, the famous Carol King, of course. This only features Freddie. It doesn't have any other Queen participants on it. The final line of Mother Love, which is that the last track on the Made in Heaven album, sort of, before no, the... It's, it's the last. it's the last track they ever recorded they ever with Freddie recorded, in the studio. Right? It's the last ever Freddie vocal. And uh, the the line that that song ends on, Mother Love ends on, is I think I'm going back to the things I learned so well in my youth. Uh, and this is I'm going back. I can recall the time Right. Do I need to play a little bit more? No, it's gorgeous. It's all good. It's a beautiful song, uh, isn't yeah. it? It is that. a beautiful song, uh, and so eerie that you know, uh, on "Mother Love," the last song they recorded together, as you say, that they lyrically, you know, they stitch back to specifically this song mm. and that era mm. of their lives, I guess. Yeah. Well, quite a lot of um, there are lots of references back on "Made in Heaven." including, I think I'm correct, every single song they ever played sped up. Yes. Yes. Is Which, yeah. is, is that on, is that on Mother Love? It I is, think isn't it, it is. I think, it I think is. it's like the end, and then it there's a like a baby crying at the end. Yeah. Yeah. Backwards. yeah. Every single track that they've ever recorded all blasted into a little wall of mm. noise.
It's interesting this because I think this is originally Dusty Springfield recorded it, uh, and you can hear Freddie's got his definite. You can hear it's Freddie, but it's almost like he's aping her voice a tiny amount, like just enough, slightly it's, tempered. Mm. Yeah, it's really interesting how he can sort of flip into a s- slight amount of someone else's voice. That's yeah. amazing. That's brilliant. Here's a question for you all. What song would you most like to have heard Queen cover? Oh, oh man, that's another podcast oh. entirely, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> I, I have did, an answer. I did love it when they played Feel Like Making Love on the Paul Rogers tour. I loved that. I thought that was fantastic. <laughs> it sounded amazing. Um, I don't know, anything by... Uh, Mika. (laughs) 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 Maybe one to consider for next week. Yeah, that's a great one. I actually, I actually have an answer, uh, and it's heaven on their minds from Jesus Christ Superstar. I think Freddie would have absolutely smashed that. Oh, Mm. that 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 A, that first top A in Jesus. I'd have loved to have heard him. Sing that. Just belt that out. Yeah. That's a great question. That is, that is up yeah, there with some awesome. of your greatest facts, John. That is uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's very, very good. Um, so the last little track that we'll listen to to round out this sort of um, Simon Says special is um, The Man from Manhattan, which was recorded a lot later um, in August 1975. So Queen were well established by now, I would say. Um, obviously, they hadn't released Night of the Opera yet. Um but it appeared on the Ghost of a Smile album, actually. Freddie was playing the piano, doing backing vocals, and produced the song. Brian was playing guitar, uh, and Eddie Howell was doing the lead vocals. But by this point, uh, and I think it was eventually released in 1976, March 1976, as a as a single. Um, but what's interesting about it is, by this point, it is essentially a Queen song, with the exception of Eddie Howell, who's not able to quite hit what Freddie would do with that track but um, uh, this is um, The Man from Manhattan by Eddie Howell Give me the girl do you trust me oh, I'm gonna tell you no lies I'm gonna come clean don't make a scene I've been hiding behind the disguise Oh I'm the man from Manhattan Olé. I mean, how killer queen can you get, actually? Yeah. <laughs> what a track. It's a great track. I like it a lot, mm. but it's so queen. What do you think, guys? Yeah. I haven't heard that song for 25 years. 25 years? It. Yeah, I've got it on CD, but um, I've, there's a small portion of my CDs, maybe about 20 CDs, which didn't get imported into my iTunes, and that's one of them. Um, and yeah, I remember my that wow, that just seeing that cover there, that terrible cover where Freddie look looks like depressed. They so they look, yeah. yeah, they look like so they're not boring. speaking to each other. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's such an odd image to choose. But uh, yeah, I remember it. Crikey, Moses. It's got a slightly Beatlesy vibe to it in places. Yes, that's true, mm. yeah. Actually, a lot of the stuff we've listened to on this podcast, you can sort of feel those Beatles influences as much as, you know, we've talked a lot about Led Zeppelin and Jimi Hendrix, but there is a lot of Beatles 
of course, kind of yeah. s- sounds go through all of this inevitably. Yeah, certainly. I mean, you know, descending bass chords and whatever. Um, but yeah, there it is. I think that has now thoroughly covered as much as we could find of all the sort of stuff around the beginning of Queen, the genesis of Queen stuff that we're, we're looking at over series one. So, um, was well, to just Simon, just one to round off one fact: did did Freddie join Smile, or did Smile disband and Brian and Roger form Queen with Freddie? Although it wasn't called called Queen at the time. My my understanding is is Freddie said that he would sing for them as Smile, um, yeah. But they very he very quickly changed the name to Queen because he had such big plans but i i'm pretty sure they did a few gigs as smile and so it's sort of smile smile and, and queen are the same timeline if you like yeah you know on on wikipedia where they have the sort of members timelines with you you could add smile to that it's not like smile ended and then two months later freddie said to brian and roger hey we should start a band it was sort of it did overlap in that sense yeah definitely i i think if you want to draw we could perhaps draw the line where it started is that moment where tim and brian jammed with with roger for the first time i think that is perhaps where you would start the queen timeline um and yeah and as you say tim left freddie took over and then smile morphed into queen a few podcasts ago, actually, Simon, you mentioned uh, that your old teacher David Cripps played in yeah. the support act for, and they were they were billed as Smile, but when they turned up, they asked to be announced as Queen. So you can see that overlap starting to take place in a in an earlier anecdote. Yeah, and they ju- they just played the Cavern Club, which of course was famous for you know where the Beatles you know played, and because of it, I believe that that Queen asked for more money because they'd. They felt they were bigger because they played the Cavern Club, um, and they were told no. <laughs> oh, <laughs> amazing! All right, well, look, uh, that is a lovely special. I think uh, if you have a deep cut question, or you have if there's stuff that we're talking about that you want more information about, um, you may find we'll devote an entire special to just your question. So, thank you to all of you that wrote in and and, and asked us to explain a little bit more about. Smart gave us a lovely opportunity to look at their early stuff and, and just see how talented they were right from the off, which is it's actually been a really enjoyable dive. Um, so until next time, uh, I'm going to say to you, please, please, if you have a question like that, email us queenpod at the queenpodcast.com. That is the best way to get us information that you want us to get into, uh, uh, or you can uh, drop us a, a line to tell us how much you love us at the Queen Pod on Twitter and Instagram. Um, and uh, also, obviously, please do like and review on whatever podcast platform you're listening to this on. Uh, if you do want to tell us how much you hate us, just do that by email. That would be great. Um, <laughs> uh, that all leaves me, that just leaves me to say a very fond farewell. Let's say goodbye to the guys from all the guys. Goodbye. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) Lots of editing for producer Giles to do. Good night. This has been The Queen Pod, a Seven Seas Films production. Edited and produced by me, Fergus March. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram and stay in touch by emailing queenpod at thequeenpodcast.com. 
Thanks for listening and see you next time. Thank you.